first of all, thank you both for being here. Rachel just gave a phenomenal introduction, but if you guys sort of want to summarize the role that you guys currently play um, in, in the field of domestic violence asylum and also the different perspective that you bring to that field based <coughs> off of your, your prior history. Yeah, Sabrina, you can start. Sure, uh, so my name is Sabrina Talukdar. I graduated from UVA in 2014, so it's very nice to be back and I'd really like to thank the Domestic Violence Project and I believe a plethora of other organizations that orchestrated this event. So thank you so much for allowing me to be here today to meet and speak with Archie and um, to talk about something I care a lot about in a place that I love a lot in the fall especially. <laughs> and I work at the Legal Aid Society, which is the oldest and largest provider of legal services to indigent populations in the country. It was founded in 1876, and we have three branches. We have a civil, criminal, and juvenile rights project. And I work within our domestic violence immigration unit, and my expertise is working with uh, human trafficking survivors who are non-citizens, who have open criminal cases, and I advise them in their criminal issues and fully represent them in, in their immigration matters. And I represent people at every point in their immigration process, whether it's before an agency, before a judge, or I also do habeas cases for people who are ordered removed from the United States. Excellent, and my name is Archie, and I was, um, uh, or the Tahrir Justice Center, I'll start there, is um, a national nonprofit organization. We're based in the DC area. Uh, we started in 1997, just after the um, our founder, Laylee Miller-Muro, uh, was a law student, actually at American, and was representing a woman named Fauzia Kasinja, who won asylum because she was from Togo, and she won asylum uh, because she was afraid of experiencing female genital mutilation and a forced marriage. Um, and when Laylee worked on this case and, and won and was able to get asylum for Fauzia, uh, it was the first in the country, the first asylum case that uh, helped a woman get asylum because of persecution she feared based on her gender. And we'll talk about that more, but that's the foundation of our organization. Uh, we then, um, Laylee co-wrote a book with Fauzia herself, and with her share of the profits, Laylee founded Tahereh Justice Center, the proceeds of that book. Um, so Tahereh's, uh, you know, history and our origins and everything are really related and tied in very closely to the subject of today's panel and what's going on right now in, in the world of immigration. Um, uh, so we have been around for over 20 years. We've served more than 25,000 women and girls uh, fleeing violence. Uh, we do a, a range of immigration cases. We also provide uh, holistic services, so social services where needed. Um, and then we have our public policy team. We have five offices around the country in Houston, uh, Baltimore, the DC area, Atlanta now is our newest, and then the San Francisco Bay Area. Um, and our goal is really to improve the laws uh, that affect immigrant women and create pathways for them to take that one little piece, um, that one step or that one piece of their journey uh, of getting to freedom and getting to safety and, and make it a little bit easier for them. So that's what I do at Tahari is uh, I oversee the programmatic, well I used to oversee the programmatic work, my title has shifted, I only oversee the policy work now because we've gotten just that big. Thank you. And when I'm asking the questions, whoever I don't start with, please always feel free to jump in afterward. Um, Archie, I'll go off, off what you were mentioning with the Fauzia case. Could you explain a little bit um, sort of the, the asylum framework and how domestic violence victims fit into this framework? Yeah, absolutely. So um, one of the reasons I got into asylum law coming out of, out of law school, when I was in law school, I really wanted to do international law, and I was very excited about the international law world. I went overseas, and I studied international law, and then I started to realize that international law is actually very hard to practice. Um, it's not really a thing, especially if you're American, it's really hard um, to break into that world and, and to become somebody who can uh, actively use international law to make change. Um, what I realized, though, is that asylum law is a great way to do that, because our asylum law in the United States really is just, um, you know, the definition of who a refugee should be in an international treaty called the Refugee Convention, sort of cut and pasted into our Immigration and Nationality Act. That definition tells us who can be a refugee if they're coming from, they're decided they're a refugee overseas and coming in, or if they're in the United States and they're applying for asylum status and they want to get um, uh, asylum papers and be considered a refugee inside the United States, 
they also have to meet that definition. Now to qualify in this, according to this definition, you have to be able to show that you're outside your country of origin, that you're fleeing harm that amounts to persecution, which is pretty serious, um, that you're, it's some, some people call it a threat to life or liberty, but there's no clear definition, that the persecution is motivated because of one of five grounds, which, is, uh, which are race, religion, national origin, membership in a social group, or political opinion. So a lot of people call it political asylum. You hear people say that in movies, even law professors say political asylum. That's wrong. There's no such thing as, I mean, there's one thing as political asylum, but there are four other grounds as well. Um, one of those grounds, social group, uh, sounds like, I don't know what that means. We in this room could be a social group if we're socializing. It, that's not actually how it works, and we'll, that's where gender asylum kind of fits in, so we'll unpack that. You also have to be somebody who's afraid uh, of this persecution on these grounds from somebody who is either acting on behalf of the state or is someone the state, the government they're from, cannot or will not control. And so where we are now um, in, in, in this moment in history is very tied to the weirdness of that definition. It's a wonky definition that was written by a bunch of people, including the United States government, drafting this definition just post-Holocaust. And so the World War II was ended, the Holocaust was over, and now we have this definition um, coming out. And it really focuses on civil and political rights. It doesn't really focus, you hear the, the race, the religion, um, the national origin, and political opinion in particular. It's really also focusing on things that um, the drafters thought were immutable characteristics, things you can't change about yourself. Um, and it's interesting that political opinion was considered a characteristic you can't change, um, but that's again because of the context, that what was going on in the world at the time. Um, fast forward many years now and you find this definition in the INA uh, and people are getting asylum in this country who've come here and are making claims inside these five grounds. What began to be clear is that there were some people who were fleeing persecution, fleeing harm that amounted to persecution, but it was getting hard for them to fit into one of these five categories. Uh, Fauzia's case was, one, was the first in the country where it was argued that in fact women who are fleeing violence based on their gender uh, should also be considered persecuted because of an immutable characteristic. We could argue even more than a political opinion, we can't be asked to change our gender. What's hard to prove, though, is what is motivating the violence, what is motivating the persecution. Many times, uh, victims of domestic violence or gender-based violence of any kind will tell you that they don't know what was motivating their abuser, they don't know what was motivating the family who cut their genitals or forced them into a marriage, or they think it was just practice, it's part of culture. So how do we know that gender is what was motivating it? So the case, um, the Fauzia Kassinja case, really drilled into in all the argumentation, the legal briefs, how can we know that? By looking at the circumstances in the country, by analyzing uh, what other people have been through and why that might have happened, by looking at by applying a gender analysis, frankly, and saying, would boys and men go through this thing that girls and women are going through? And so because of that, after you know a long appeals history, Fauzia was granted, and that's the seminal case upon which domestic violence claims then started to become based. There was a case called uh, Matter of R.A., and it was about a Guatemalan woman named Rodi Alvarado. And when I came out of law school in 2002, this was the case that was really at the heart of the debate. 9-11 had happened. We'd had a lot of restrictions on immigration. Um, you know, President Bush was making a lot of changes at the time to the immigration system. I was an Equal Justice Works fellow in that environment. And then here came Attorney General Ashcroft at the time, who said, there's this case matter of RA about women asking for asylum based on domestic violence, and I don't know how I feel about that. There's a floodgates issue here. More than 50% of the world's people are women. I know that domestic violence is a scourge that affects humanity across the globe. We could potentially be talking about opening the doors to half the world's population. I want to take a look at that case, and he took it to himself. Organizations like mine at the time, uh, Human Rights First and others around the country, began uh, uh, arguing against this idea that, that um, we could stop somebody like Rodi Alvarado for getting asylum and argued for her. What was interesting was that the Department of Homeland Security, which was a new body at the time, also argued in favor of Rodi Alvarado getting asylum. So we saw that actually both sides, if you will, the government and um, the NGOs were saying domestic violence should qualify for asylum people who've, who've experienced domestic violence, again, it has to be very serious, it has to be persecution. We have to be able to show the motivation. We have to also be able to show that the persecutor is somebody the government won't control. 
So there are pretty high standards, non, you know, even if we're talking about domestic violence as a ground. The a Ashcroft did not decide after many years, <laughs> there was a decision granting Rodi Alvarado. There was another decision granting another case like that case, ARCG, which, which was a precedent decision. And for the first time, I think it was 2014, we had a case that said um, domestic violence victims can be granted asylum in the United States across the board. So I had been litigating cases for 12 years based on domestic violence, never having matter of ARCG in my pocket. And we were winning because we were being creative advocates and we were arguing around all the margins. If you were a political opinion, you could say my opinion that I'm as a woman, I shouldn't be beaten is actually a political opinion. And I would argue that it is for myself even. And so that is um, how we used to make the arguments. But once ARCG came down, we had a nice easy path. You just write, hey, this fits in ARCG and your client gets granted. Now comes matter of AB with Attorney General Jeff Sessions doing very much what Ashcroft tried to do, taking this case off the desk of the, BI, of the um, uh, Im immigration judge, actually, and saying, let's, um, let's see if we can undo this, this history and really set us back. Now, his, his decision, um, Sessions' decision, is very badly written. And as young lawyers and soon-to-be lawyers, I will tell you when I read his decision, I'm very angry with whatever teacher taught whoever wrote that decision um, for letting that person graduate and go on to work in the Department of Justice and write such crappy decisions. Um, but it's a terrible decision. It's very poorly written. It obviously, the in intent is to slam the door on women seeking asylum based on domestic violence. It's so badly written that we're arguing in court right now that it doesn't actually slam the door. It just kind of confirms what we knew already were the standards, but that's not the intent. And so the impact is another story, but I'll stop there because I know, um, you know, I don't know, you may want to talk more to impact, so I'll leave it there. So, Sabrina, if there's anything. Um, nothing. I think that uh, just for some context uh, to talk about who actually AB was and her story, I think is important as as you as you guys graduate and take on more cases to realize that the facts of the matter of AB are really indicative of the national conversation that we have about domestic violence and how we view domestic violence within our culture. That AB could have been anyone in the world at any time. So. Um, AB, she was born in El Salvador in the, 1920, in the 1970s. She met her husband, who became the father of her three children in her early 20s. She experienced severe domestic violence for the next 15 years. And I know we say domestic violence as this overarching word, but it's important to understand how many layers of violence that actually means. So we're talking about, in, in addition to just extreme physical, not just like with your hands, with instruments, physical violence by other people, by neighbors that are permitted, that's in addition to sexual violence, to psychological violence, emotional, psychological violence to your children, financial abuse. So it's an extreme, it's a word that encompasses so many kinds of persecution. So she experienced that for 15 years. She sought protection from the El Salvadorian authorities uh, twice, I believe, and uh, they issued uh, restraining orders that they did not follow through on. They did nothing. She tried to move away. She tried to file for divorce. But what happened is that her abuser simply escalated the death threats to her, her family, and her kids. So she felt like she was unable to leave. And I think it's important to know who this person is because, again, she could be anyone. Mm -hmm. um, I'm sure by now people have studied the case Castle Rock in 2004. This is very similar to the fact pattern there where it was someone who was a U.S. citizen who filed for orders of protection against her abuser. The police didn't follow through. And in that case, her children were murdered by her abusers. But when we discuss domestic violence, especially on this panel, it should also be viewed within the larger context of what's happening in our society today. Um, he, uh, you know, as Archie was saying, Sessions' his opinion is actually really terrible. It's really bad lawyering that provides advocates with a little bit of wiggle room. Like that's how bad the language is in the case law. In sorry, in his decision. But it is emblematic of how people view domestic violence today. So he discusses the inability, you know, was she really not able to leave? Was she really credible, even though there are 700 pages of corroborating mm -hmm. evidence citing her credibility? And um, was this really persecution? These are all questions that I think every domestic violence survivor faces all over the world, even the richest women here in the United States. It's exactly what happened in the Kavanaugh hearings. So, 
as we discuss these issues more and more on this panel, I, I think that's a really important context to keep in mind, especially as you guys move forward in your legal careers. And to start with Archie again, um, how, how much precedent is there for the Attorney General to be taking a case like this and issuing his own, own opinion? Yeah, so as I mentioned, Ashcroft has done it. It's a it's a part of the um, the way. In case folks in here have not, you know, studied immigration law, um, the way our adjudicative system works in these cases, there's um, actually all of the immigration courts are under the executive branch. They're not um, a part of our judicial branch, and so um, the Department of Justice is really over. You know, it, they live inside the Department of Justice, and so um, the Attorney General oversees all of the immigration decisions that happen. Um, from the immigration courts and the Board of Immigration Appeals. So it is inside his, um, his purview to take an unsettled matter or a really controversial matter off the desk of the Board of Immigration Appeals and consider it for himself, as Ashcroft was attempting to do. But even when, and I was young when Ashcroft was an attorney general and we were all very angry about this awful attorney general, um, but he at least had the sense to say, uh, well, the opposing parties agree and so I won't issue a decision. Um, in this situation, we have uh, um, a, di a very different outcome, a very different circumstance and a very different outcome because Attorney General Sessions did not take a case that was a situation that was um, controversial or unsettled. He didn't take, it, it was settled already with ARCG, he didn't take a case that was on the desk of the BIA. He took one straight from an immigration judge, which is very unusual. Um, and another thing we've seen with this Attorney General is that there were um, in, the la in the first, I think it was four or five months between January and May, I think, of uh, 2018, he certified to himself four major immigration cases, whereas in eight years of the Obama administration, only three had been certified. So you see the sort of rapid pace, and we've all summer long had more um, coming, and we're working on two or three briefs right now at Tahare that relate to others that have been certified in the summer. So it's what's interesting is that um, you know, you, you asked precedent-wise, there is precedent. There isn't really precedent for rewriting immigration law through certifications in the way that it's being done right now. It's also a part of the broader scheme, I think it's important to see. You know, Sabrina very helpfully asked us not to lose sight of the victims, which is right. Um, I also, I keep telling reporters not to lose sight of the bigger picture. They all call asking about AB, but you have to see AB as part of a broader fabric of attacks on immigrants and attacks on asylum in particular. Um, whether it's in, you know, whether uh, immigrants and asylum seekers get their day in court at all, whether they have due process, whether the immigration judges have any independence or whether they have to meet quotas for denying cases, um, all the way to what qualifies for asylum um, eligibility standards like matter of AB and others. So I, I want to, you know, go meta. You know, as much as we need to look really micro and look at each individual, we can also look meta and say there's a, um, a bigger game afoot here with this attorney general. And so to now start with Sabrina, um, how are or how can attorneys respond to this case? You guys have both mentioned the wiggle room um, in the case itself. Sure. So I think that uh, people have been going advocates across the country have been going about this in different ways. I think within my organization, we're just continuing to push forward with domestic violence claims um, in asylum court with people who are in removal proceedings or for applying affirmatively. And we're thinking of every possible backup option that could possibly exist for our client. And we're trying to think about the strength of their case within the next year and the next five years. And so you're essentially bringing forward you're, you're still fighting as much as you can based on their experiences of domestic violence. But as Archie was saying, because matter of AB is so poorly written, it doesn't actually foreclose domestic violence permanently or completely as a ground for asylum. That's really for two main reasons. The first is that he still keeps intact the um, idea in asylum law that cases can be adjudicated on a case-by-case -case basis. So we can still bring forward domestic violence claims 
but within the very bad language of matter of AB. So for example, when um, Sessions discusses the particular social group analysis, he only says that domestic violence victims are not a cognizable social group, and he, he either like doesn't really talk about it or conflates the actual components that comprise a particular social group, so immutable characteristics, particularity, social visibility, and so what we've been doing is we still bring forward that this person satisfies the immutable characteristics, particularity, social visibility, but we just don't call it domestic violence. We call it a lot of other things that should be domestic violence, but they're not. And that also goes to um, the idea of persecution. So within Matter of AB, he conflates a lot of the arguments around persecution. And by doing that, he kind of keeps the standard intact. It's still the totality of harm experienced. And so, like I said, the domestic violence is so many different kinds of violence. We don't talk about domestic violence in these uh, post-AB world as like domestic violence. I just like break down every possible kind of harm that she's experienced so that it'll be viewed within the totality. Um, I mean, for me, I started in 2014 and I lived in an ARCG world and it was wonderful. And so I'm now, as Archie was saying, you know, just desperately trying to put together all different kinds of arguments that is really just kind of like legal creativity. It's the same fact pattern, it's the same story, but because of matter of AB, you're forced to couch it in these ways in order to just try and push your client forward to the next step. And, you know, as Archie was saying, we return to a world of like gender-based claims without being able to move forward explicitly under domestic violence experiences are credible. They are, they qualify as persecution. And um, I think what's been really new for me at least and for other advocates is like you're going through the appeals process to the very end of the line, um, which is a lot of resources, a lot of time when you have a full caseload, but that's just what's happening and by doing that, I think more than ever, we're working with other organizations for amicus briefs, for assistance, for experts, because so much is now required of you at every level. And I think for me, it's profoundly changed my work because I now do habeas cases. Habeas is a lot of constitutional law. Didn't do that well in my class here. <laughs> but um, it's, you know, it was all of a sudden that the, we have these individuals who either require states of removal who are detained, who have already gone through the immigration process and are ordered removed. They're going to be removed in, you know, a few days or like by the end of the month, and you have to file in federal court. You have to do something. And so it's just completely changed the nature, I think, of what we do, and advocates are still figuring it out. You know, it hasn't been that long since AB was decided, and everything is really a case-by-case -case basis. You're trying to figure out, I think, together as like the advocacy community, how to best confront this. And there are a lot of different ways to do it, but that has at least been Legal Aid Society's way. And Archie, would you speak to how the Tahrir Justice Center has been responding? Yeah, sure. Um, just to you know, agree with Sabrina that it is a new era of being creative. We have actually um, created a model brief, which um, those of us who are older at the organization wrote, um, based on our experience before ARCG, since most of our attorneys are post-ARCG attorneys. Um, we kind of divide into two camps now. Um, and so we wanted to help the younger folks uh, sort of remember, like know what we learned when we were lawyering on these cases. So we've written this model brief, it's like, I don't know, very, very long, because it's got every possible permutation we can imagine in there. Um, and uh, just like she said, we're seeing every single case as the beginning of an appeals case. Every single case is going to be appealed, we know, because it will be denied, but also could be the one in, our, in whatever circuit we're practicing in that is going to make the new law for that circuit and could potentially create the split that will end up taking it to the Supreme Court. And so we have to make sure we're, we're appealing cases carefully um, and, and working um, from beginning to end with the idea, with this long view, which is which is which none of us has ever worked in, you know, in that kind of a, a circumstance before. Um, so that's how it's impacting our lawyering, I would say. Um, one thing I would add is that uh, if you are going to go into the nonprofit world, this may feel really, really relevant and important and, and 
front and center. Some of you may know that you're not, and you may already be thinking about going into law firms, um, which is you know fine. I think what I would say is that we are more than ever relying on pro bono attorneys at law yeah. firms. Um, when I started, again, we were working with pro bonos, but it was a sort of um, only some organizations did it, and only we only did it on our sort of easier cases because you know we didn't want to have to train pro bonos too much and that kind of thing. That era is over. We are um, we work with pro bonos on almost every single case. I think we've got a very high percentage now. Um, and part of it is because any case could end up being a constitutional case. Any case could end up being um, uh, a case that goes to the to a circuit court. So we have to have a litigator who knows how to litigate um, on every case that we're that we're doing and litigate beyond just immigration court. So um, for those of you who are going into corporate um, or or commercial litigation, I would suggest that these are interesting cases to get involved in when your pro bono coordinators are sending around matters. Um, you know, whatever part of the country you're in, you could end up, you know, at the front, at the front, in, in the front seat of a very important case for, for the national um, immigration law um, tapestry. So just a word for later. And I think this will be my last question before we open it up, but Archie, you mentioned the fact that Attorney General Sessions has been taking a lot more cases than we've seen in the past, and, and would you say there's a trend to the cases beyond sort of the overall trend of trying to close our doors to asylum seekers, is there any sort of underlining currents other that are more specific than that? Yeah, I mean, I think, I don't know how, um, a lot of it's guessing, you know, um, and, and we're all guessing. We were saying before we started that um, anybody's guess is as good as anybody else's. I mean, sitting in Washington, certainly, um, we all feel in the Washington space like we're at the you know heartbeat of everything, but I think we don't know anything either. Um, once upon a time in the Obama administration, when I was equal opportunity fighting with that administration, at least the door was open, and we were in the White House. I was in the White House every week, arguing with um, White House counsel and saying, you don't know what you're talking about, do it this way, do it that way. Now it's just a completely closed door. We all go to the White House to ask for meetings. We don't get them. So, um, even nonpartisan organizations don't get, um, which is what we are, we don't get entries. So um, that opportunity to kind of hear what's coming and understand the logic is not there anymore. Uh, what I will say is that it seems that um, this administration is really motivated to keep out uh, immigrants, um, not, not just to sort of cripple the immigration system, but also to keep out immigrants with certain backgrounds. Um, uh, racial backgrounds, ethnic backgrounds, national backgrounds, um, as well as, uh, you know, and, and I think what they're doing, that is, the, those are the backgrounds they're looking at, and then I think what they're doing is saying when and how are those people coming, and then attacking in those ways. So I don't think that if there had been a Russian woman, which there could be, asking for gender-based asylum uh, or domestic violence asylum, that would have motivated matter of AB. It's not a theoretical objection to matter of AB that motivated the case. It is the fact that at the border, the majority of people crossing the border have been um, uh, women and have been women with their children or children alone fleeing gender-based violence. And it's often, it's rape, it's femicide, it's domestic violence, it's trafficking. And those individuals who are coming across the border are filing more and more these kinds of claims. It doesn't mean that they're wrong to file them. It doesn't mean that they don't qualify. It just means that there is serious violence happening with <coughs> impunity in those countries and that, that are driving immigrants up here, especially asylum seekers. Now, I think what has happened is that inside Department of Homeland Security since 2013, 2014, as the numbers from Central America climbed, it really started in about 2011, the administration, Obama administration, looked at that and said, um, you know, I think there was a lot of mismanagement in how they handled the influx of children and the influx of families, and they, they seem to be caught unawares, which if you look at the numbers doesn't make sense. They should have predicted it. Um, but without predicting it and without really knowing how to triage it, they went into this panic mode and took on all these different policies like detaining families and doing things like that, which were just so ill-advised, did nothing to deter um, immigration or asylum seekers <laughs> from coming up here. Um, and really kind of laid a pathway for the numbers we see now and the fact that this administration is looking at that those patterns and saying, how can we shut that door and do good on a promise that people were hoping for in the last administration and never got. And that promise is, you know, closing out all those people coming across the southern border. 
um, our, the prior administration did a poor job of handling it, this administration is responding. And how they're responding is by tackling um, families coming across, by, by prosecuting parents and separating children from parents, they're um, stopping uh, gender-based asylum because they know many women are applying on that ground. Um, the most recent one involves um, Negusi, which again is a very well-settled case. Um, really great decision actually out of a very conservative panel in the BIA this summer. Now Sessions has picked up that case again for no good reason, clearly, because it's a settled case, um, but is going to reissue that. And that case really involves uh, if you have the persecutor bar, so if you could be found to be a persecutor, um, you can't get asylum. Well, what counts as a persecutor is up for discussion because you may have been involved with the militia group, but it may be because um, you were being trafficked by them, you had been forced into cooperation, your children had been threatened, um, you were forced to give them money, otherwise your business would be burned down, extorted. So there are a lot of different reasons why you might have participated. Sometimes it's children, in fact, who were um, conscripted, just like child soldiers. And it looks like Sessions wants to take away the duress exception and make it so that anybody would, would be um, disqualified from asylum, which would apply to people from all the countries we're talking about, where gender-based violence is high, also gang violence is high. When we say gangs, what we mean really organized militia groups is very high. And so that is, um, I think, another way that they're going to close the door. It's, so it, again, it's, they're going after the system, but it's also a pretty nice patchwork to get at certain groups of people they want to close the door on. Now, what's interesting, I was just sharing with Rachel before we started, um, this is a well-timed panel. We are expecting tomorrow uh, a new um, executive order to come out of the White House. Um, you would have read, I think, in the paper over the weekend that this was coming. It sounds like it's coming tomorrow. Um, and what it will likely do is shut the door, uh, shut the southern border down, uh, much like the Muslim ban did um, in 2017, <coughs> keeping out classes of individuals who are um, against um, this national interests. This would be a similar, they're using the same provision, 212F, of the INA to go after Central Americans. Now, we don't know if it's going to be like naming countries or saying um, people coming between certain dates or saying, you know, we don't know how they're going to close the door. We'll all find out together tomorrow um, and obviously be responding and litigating that. Our lawsuits are already prepared. Um, over the weekend, we've all been, you know, working 24-3 um, to get ready um, since we just all found out about it late last week. So, um, yeah, I guess the pattern is really keeping Central Americans out of the United States. Well, on that note, any questions? Yeah? Uh, thank you both so much for being here. Um, my question is kind of back to uh, strategies about getting around AV. So I was working this summer at an immigration legal aid organization, and I left before these cases were submitted. But one of the strategies that we considered was using like, a family-based yeah. claim as the particular social group, which is something that's that the EIA has allowed in other contexts in the past. I'm wondering whether that's something that your organizations have considered or seen whether it would succeed or not. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. I mean, I think that's, I, I think the, the idea of making these arguments all different kinds of gender-based arguments or going outside, like Archie was saying, to political opinion, to family-based violence, I think that those are actually strategies that have always been used in a pre-ARCG world. And I think that, like, like we were saying, that we have to be really creative about how we phrase domestic violence, but absolutely, I think so. So we had a, um, I had a case some years ago where there was a mother and two children, and the two children, um, the mother fled domestic violence and came up here, and then the two children were abused by the father back home because he said he wanted the mother to come back. And so we filed claims based for the children, um, saying that they were a member of the family with the mother. So it, we've been doing that kind of thing, even in ARCG. Even, I mean, in, in any kind of situation, you may need to say that there's persecution because of a family. Um, we've, we've seen those cases where there's political violence as well. You might say the person has a political opinion, but where it was not expressed explicitly by everyone in the family, even you, know, you might say then it's a family group that's being targeted. So my, my point, I guess, is you're right. It's not a very well-settled area of law, but it is one that can be used um, and used um, in many different circumstances, certainly in this kind of a circumstance as well. And I would add to that that also with domestic violence, 
I think that a lot of our clients have experienced a lifetime of domestic violence by multiple people, that it's a vicious cycle and a lifetime of victimization. So in general, when you have someone who has experienced violence in the hands of an intimate partner, you always do have to go back, mm -hmm. especially now, about what's happened since you were young. And more likely than not, they have also experienced violence at the hands of a family member. As children especially, and child abuse has not been ruled out. And that does not count as gender-based violence. So. I think the Center for Gender and Refugee Studies, uh, when they submitted their amicus briefs, uh, they did like a, an incredible job of explaining the due process and jurisdictional issues within this exact, the exact procedural posture that you're describing right now. And that because there was such open animus um, stated by this administration and by sessions that there were clear due process issues. And my understanding is that other organizations ha are considering strategically appealing this case in some degree precisely because of these jurisdictional issues. So I think that it's still an open question for many organizations. Definitely. I mean, uh, yeah, in terms of the appeal that Sabrina's mentioning, we have not had a chance. You know, we've been writing amicus briefs on, we wrote amicus briefs and filed them on this case as well, but we have not had a chance yet to make jurisdictional arguments because with Sessions' decision, the case went back to the immigration judge. And until the immigration judge ruled, it couldn't go to the Board of Immigration Appeals, and it couldn't go to a circuit court. But the immigration judge has now ruled on the case and denied her outright again. And so now it's before the B Board of Immigration Appeals. And assuming the BIA will find in line with, this, with Sessions' decision, um, we'll have it in the Fourth Circuit. And at that point, we will be able to make the jurisdictional arguments <coughs> and try to cut the legs out from under the decision um, right there. Um, so basically, uh, again, it's a part of the idea of asylum law, right, and the Refugee Convention in itself was to provide safe, a safe harbor for someone whose own government couldn't protect them. So if I'm going through something in the United States, the idea is my, own go my government should protect me. But if it fails, I should be able to go somewhere else and get that protection. So it's this idea that you can't just sort of form shop, that you can only come here when and if um, you're from, you live in another country, you decide that your country is abandoning you. Um, again, coming out of the Holocaust, very much thinking of that standard and that level of abandonment by a government. And so um, that's why that provision is in there. When, when women come to this country and, and specifically make claims based on domestic violence, the question is a very important one. How is the man in that intimate, relate, if it's an intimate partner, how is that man um, working at the hands of the government or is, is the government unable to control him? And it is a, um, it used to be a very, it was hard to imagine how to thread that needle. Even with Fauzia's case, with um, female genital mutilation and things like that, it was always a question. How do you make that, um, how do you make that claim? But, you know, let's take FGM first and come to domestic violence second. With FGM, you can look at the fact that it happens with um, all over the, in, in many communities, throughout the community, the government may know, it may be illegal, it may not be illegal, but the government does very little to stop FGM from happening. If you go to your government in, in Togo or Guinea or another place and you say, my daughter is going to go through FGM, I want you to stop it, the government doesn't do anything to stop it. They say, you know, that's your home, that's your community. Um, sometimes there are even tribal courts or family courts or um, community courts, and they govern and they will, they will condone it. So 
In the FGM example, we've never really had a hard time saying that the government would allow it. Um, so then if you transfer that logic to domestic violence, uh, it should stand to reason that if you are in an, even if it's a, not a family violence situation, but an intimate partner situation, that if you cannot, um, uh, if you went to the police and asked for help, and that police officer or police station or, or whatever it would be, government agency would look at you and say, go back home, or you belong with your husband, or this is a private matter, um, therefore you should deal with it at home, uh, or would laugh at you, or would themselves tell you, as happened in matter of AB, you should really get out of this country, because trust us, there's nothing we can do. Um, in a situation like that, you then can say, well, the government can't and won't control my persecutor. So if you establish, first of all, that you're being persecuted, then basically through hearsay, you can establish why the persecutor was trying to harm you, and you come to the state actor element, um, you know, it, it stands to reason, not every case will fit this. If it is somebody from a country like the UK, where the laws and the, the um, police uh, protection mirrors that of the United States or another place like uh, another developed country, it would be very hard to make the argument that your government would not protect you anywhere. You couldn't get to a domestic violence shelter. You couldn't get out of the you know out of that region and be able to set yourself up. But what if you're in a country where there are no shelters, where um, you know the police would send you home, where the gang violence or organized crime violence is so severe that the networks could easily get you back to where you were or tip off your abuser. So. In looking at really the circumstances in the country, across the country, not just in a specific location, you can establish the government element of that persecution and why and how the government is unwilling or unable to control. Usually, you can develop that through, um, uh, you can develop that line of uh, reasoning through country conditions reports, human rights reports, as well as reports by our own government, although the State Department reports are being um, diminished uh, as we speak. Or you can actually get expert witnesses, and they can, sometimes for free, sometimes paid, uh, will testify as to what they know and have seen in that country about police response and government response. Does that answer you? Do you have more questions? Did I, did I go too superficial? Those, those steps that the woman could take, does she have to, in fact, uh, that kind of goes judge by judge. I have had judges, um, when I practiced in New York, um, judges didn't always require that. They were pretty liberal and, um, and understanding about the, the, the cycles of domestic violence and how that could happen, the sort of social conditions that are required to make domestic violence such a severe phenomenon in, in, a, in a particular location. Um, uh, you know, they would understand that. And so if she didn't, if a woman from El Salvador or Honduras had not called the police but said, I would often direct exam, ask my client, why didn't you? And if she said, well, I never thought I could because women never did. If they did, X, Y, and Z happened to them. I read about a woman who went to the police station and then was raped after asking for help. You know, give some, you know, commentary as to it. It's, it's reasonable. The judge is usually applying a reasonable per per person test and will say, well, it seems reasonable that you wouldn't have asked for protection and that your government wouldn't have helped you if you had. There have always been jurisdictions that are not as um, uh, generous on that thought and will say, well, you didn't call, so it doesn't count. Um, and then there have been people, like in matter of AB, that judge had evidence that she had called and that nothing had happened. And he still said, I don't like it, and I think you should have um, asked for more. And I don't think that domestic violence is a, is a national problem. So you know what people don't realize, and, and some immigration judges, and I probably Jeff Sessions, don't realize, is that in this country, we're still fighting this fight. Right, we have we just saw it as Sabrina was saying, and in our own, you know, why I didn't report was just a very recent hashtag that many of us were posting to, um, you know, whether celebrities and rich people or, or the poorest and most vulnerable among us, people are saying we don't report in America either because even after decades of having the Violence Against Women Act, we don't feel comfortable or safe coming forward. So imagine if you're in a country that doesn't have VAWA, that doesn't have protections, that doesn't have shelters, why in God's name would you report? And that's the context we're trying to make immigration judges understand. Thank you. Yeah. So this is a little related to that. It's like I understand that if the ability to relocate internally is one of the reasons why you would deny asylum, and certainly one of the things that Sessions mentioned in AB. And I was just curious about what your all's experience have been with that. Is it enough to be able to say that this is a condition that is throughout the country? Or do you need to have somebody on a fact-specific basis who is saying, look, they've tried to move away and they've consistently been brought back, as in the case of AP? 
I think that it really depends on the country that we're talking about. So we're talking about Mexico versus India versus like Guatemala. The strength of um, if you know this, you're really going to emphasize either the facts of your own case or how the government is just depending upon where they are. And I do think it is judge specific. I've pulled off arguments that I did not think I that would go very well um, in very very large countries. And to me. For me, at least, it always comes down to the facts of my client's case, which is or only corroborated by country-specific evidence. So for me, like I always try to emphasize that there are only so many places my client can go. You know, she's leaving the situation. She probably has kids in tow. Like, how much money? How like how far can her money go? And for how long can it go for? She can only go probably to these certain places and be with these family members, which are easily accessible by her abuser. And we could take it another level that no matter where she goes, this is someone who disobeyed her abuser. And I think it's really hard to imagine what that's like when you're not in that dialogue all the time. It's as if she went against the authoritarian leader of her life, right? This is an absolute death sentence. And regardless of where she goes, this person is going to hunt her down. And I think we've seen that. Um, across the world that this is something that happens that people are always traceable especially now with social media I think I had some like article about the prevalence of social media in some country and how easy it is to geo tag someone and things like that but I think that you have to I, I for me at least the facts of the case are always first and it's always corroborated by country specific evidence I think especially when it comes to the corruption within police and um, that no matter where she went, that the abuser would find her and the police would be on, or the government officials would be unable to help her. Go with our last question. Um, so you just mentioned economic resources, and I guess in my experience studying this, there seems to be a really big um, lack of empathy in terms of economic difficulty being, I mean, across the board, kind of a grounds for needing to flee or for asylum. Like, that's just not even considered because it's kind of gets into like the choice argument. So I think in when the economics intersect with a woman, for example, who's fleeing domestic violence, you're talking about, you know, there's only so far that her money can take her. I guess um, my question is, how is that how is that argument received? And I know it's on a judge by judge and case by case basis, but especially <coughs> um, from what I've learned from like, the prosecutorial side of it is there seems to be this huge lack of empathy in terms of, okay, well, even if you run out of money, if you really want to protect yourself, you're going to do whatever it takes. But then that argument at the very same time kind of slapping that person back in the face and being like, uh, I guess like, yes, I did everything that I thought that I could and that's why I'm here and that's still working against them. So I guess thinking about the economic side of it and how that interacts with um, this case, these cases in particular in terms of you know, often I would imagine the women don't, aren't the breadwinners. They're not the ones who have as much money typically, just kind of assuming that that's generally the case. How does that kind of, how is that received on the other side when you're arguing that? I can't begin to tell you like how many AUSAs, prosecutors, jail officials have just told me like, well, why couldn't she just leave? I don't get it. It's not like she had a gun to her head the whole time. Um, I, I think it goes back to like the, the general, the larger idea of how what we think about as domestic violence. And for me, I think in terms of the inability of someone to leave because of economic reasons, that's something that I've always tried to say qualifies to some degree as financial exploitation, and which is a very weak, I think a very weak argument for persecution, but I think it actually does help in trafficking cases because you're talking about someone who is exploited um, and money always comes with that in terms of how much they were paid, how much they were not paid, if, and all of those details. So for me at least in my work, and from a purely asylum <laughs> basis, it is only one minute argument within a lot of others that I've never really gotten pushback about, either from the agency or from um, a judge officially, like on the record. It does assist a lot in the trafficking-based asylum cases or with trafficking cases in general here in the United States. Um, but I think that 
I think that it actually makes a, I get a lot of pushback in criminal court and in federal court because people are trying to understand the circumstances of which someone committed a crime or they're, they're desperately trying to figure out if this fits into any of the affirmative defenses within our criminal justice system. The answer is always no, because something like, I just couldn't leave, I had to feed my kids, I didn't know what to do, I had nowhere to go, in a city like New York, right, where there are shelters, where there are a lot of protections available, which is only compounded by someone, you know, not being a native English speaker and being in a different culture with different laws, that's where I've gotten the most pushback and for I think for a lot of my cases, it's been incredibly severe that people can't figure that out. I would say, um, if I can just piggyback on Please. that, in terms of um, the empathy, I think it's a double-edged sword. I think that uh, saying that you're a poor person from a poor country um, should increase your empathy for that person, should make you see that person as having done everything they could, and the fact that they've left what little they had behind to get here should make you see just how real the violence and the fear is that, that they've, that's driven them here. Um, you know, often paying a smuggler to get into the country or even paying transit of some kind, it's everything they had left and maybe they're still even in a traffic situation where they have to pay it off. So um, there are a lot of reasons to be more empathetic. In fact, I have found the opposite, that there is a sense of, well, maybe it's not really the violence you're fearing, maybe you're just running because you didn't like your life there. Um, and so, uh, you know, we don't need poor people here. And that's, I get a, I used to get a lot of that <laughs> in court, I think, um, and especially from not court judges, but from asylum officers yeah. in um, what are supposed to be non-adversarial um, office um, affirmative meetings. Uh, we often would have asylum officers sort of pressing at this, from a very um, classist-based uh, perspective of like, you know, they may ask the questions, did you really exhaust, and it goes to this, did you really exhaust your opportunities to get away, but what they're really asking is, um, you know, do we, do we want you in this country? And it's a very, it's a very ugly line of questioning, and it's, um, it really betrays their lack of understanding of violence, but more, more than even just domestic violence, which obviously many people don't have a great understanding of, it actually is a lack of understanding of, of the global south, of how we, uh, what kind of a community we live in as, as a world, and, um, and how privileged we are as a nation here. They just don't get it. Yeah, the people just don't get it, honestly, is the takeaway. So you have to be careful. A lot of doing asylum, uh, asylum work, I think, whether you're in asylum office or litigating in front of an immigration judge, I, people would often ask me, what do you do? And I almost felt weird saying I'm a lawyer, because I never actually feel like a lawyer. Even in practice, I often felt more like um, I was in marketing, like a psychology degree would have been more helpful because it really is what's gonna make this person flip their worldview and wanna help this individual who's in front of them. There's no rules of evidence in immigration court, there's no um, real oversight, it's, it's kangaroo court, everybody's just, it's every man for himself. And so you're really, I, I really was trying to get the, um, the immigration judge or the asylum officer to picture him or herself there and if I couldn't do that, then to just start to feel like they wanna cry. And it was often, I would tell people, my job is to make people cry. If I can make the adjudicator feel like they want to cry, we might win our case. And so empathy is everything, and yet poverty is often the, the one thing they can't empathize with. Such a good point. We have to end now, because I know a lot of you have class in five minutes, but please, everyone, join me in thanking Archie and Serena. Thank you to you guys. Yeah, thank, thank you, you very much for having us. Thank you.